outlines if you didn't pick one up as you came in. Uh, if you'll hold your hand up, these guys will come forward and make sure that you, uh, that you get a copy. And while we're doing that, uh, you know tonight is game two. I was aware of that, am aware of that. And uh, I'm just, as, uh, as we're waiting for these, these outlines to be passed out, I, I was just kind of wondering, uh, I, we're all homers here, so we're going to vote for the Spurs, but how many of you actually think it's going to be a sweep? Okay, there's, there's a few. How many, how many think that it's going to five games? Six games. They'll go all seven. How many of you really don't care? <laughs> there, are, there are a few. There are a few. Uh, keep the, now that we're done voting, keep your hands up so these guys can make sure the outline gets to you. <laughs> you know, my, my own... Uh, I, 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 have, I have been so amazed at uh, the misinformation that has been on the radio about... Uh, not, not just about the Spurs, but about sports in general. It's just, um, you know... It, it, the bad predictions, the, the, the bad uh, prognostications, I mean, it's just obvious that uh, there is a lot, of, a lot of individuals on the radio that are not talking about anything that they know about. And, uh, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you, you know, you're, I'm listening to ESPN two weeks ago, and all they can talk about is Golden State Warriors. And, uh, and even while the heat was mowing through, they were talking about how they would meet Memphis. Rather, than, I mean, they wouldn't even talk about the Spurs, and now everybody's talking about them. So it kind of tells you that's kind of the state of things. You talk about what's hot, right? Well, tonight we're going to be talking about Amos, which is not necessarily a very hot topic in the United States these days or really anywhere around the Western, Western world. But we're going to talk about Amos tonight and talk about the fourth beginning in the fourth chapter that Conrad just read for us, and then parts of the sixth chapter tonight, and then the lesson is yours. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we, we stand and we tremble before the thundering of the words of Amos on your behalf to the, the, the ten tribes of Israel during the time of Jeroboam II. We tremble not just because they are words that, that were first... Uh, birthed and, and composed in your heart, but we, we tremble at the power and the force of their meaning even, even these many years removed from the original preaching and teaching of these words. We pray, Father, to, to be humble when we approach them, and we pray, Father, for the eyes that see and the ears that hear so that the full impact of these words can, can be made to our own lives and, and the shaping of our heart, the shaping of our mind the shaping of our affections when it comes to things, material things, Father, will all be transformed because of these words. Bless us tonight, Father, as we study. Bless us deeply, for we seek to be pleasing to You. We, we seek to be salt and light in this community. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A uh, fellow by the name of Philip Yancey, one of my favorite uh, writers in the religious world, wrote a book called Reaching the Invisible God, he makes an interesting observation about obedience to the commandments of God. God says it, and they're supposed to be obedient. He has this observation about it in terms of the human heart. He says, Reading church history, not to mention reflecting on my own life, is a humbling exercise indeed. In view of the mess we have made of crystal clear commands, unity of the church, love as a mark of Christians, racial and economic justice, the importance of personal purity, the danger of wealth, I tremble to think 
what we would do if some of the ambiguous doctrines were less ambiguous. End of quote. I think the answer is, for the most part, we would probably ignore them too. One of the great challenges before Amos is that he is preaching to a nation of people that talked a good fight. That is, we know we're the children of Abraham. We are his descendants. We are the people that are the recipients of the promised land that was promised centuries before to our forefathers. We are the recipients of a spiritual heritage. That is the exodus and the manna and the water from the rock and the conquering of the promised land and all of those miracles. They were the recipients of all of that spiritual heritage. They talked a good fight, but when it came to justice... They did not practice it. And the text, beginning with the one in chapter 4 that that Conrad read for us uh, just a few minutes ago, are very tough to preach because of the severity of the judgment that is talked about, that's coming down on Israel. Look at verse 2. The sovereign Lord has sworn by His holiness, which means that the God who controls everything, the sovereign Lord, the one who is really king over all creation, has sworn by His holiness. That is, there is nothing more holy than His own holiness. It is a a fact, in other words. The time, he says, will surely come when you will be taken away with what? Hooks. The last of you with fish hooks. Now, that's a tough way to begin any sermon. So what in the world is going on with those ten tribes of northern Israel that causes God to speak through Amos in such a way to these people? Now, Amos addresses, you'll notice in verse 1, addresses an audience that he refers to as the cows of Bashan. The Bashan area was was up on the north uh, east side of, of uh, it's actually in the Transjordan. It's on the south side of the Sea of Galilee, but it was to the east and, and to the north of the north end of the Jordan River. And it was a, an area that was known for its fertility of, 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 of ground. The, the grasses and, and, and the feed and, and these kinds of things that were grown in that area were, were tremendously uh, ag- aggressive. I mean, it was just a great place to be a rancher. And on top of that, this area is known for the greatness of the well-fed cattle in that area. And now when Amos, and you know, you go, wherever you go in any city, I don't care if it's a very impoverished area. I have been to some of the most impoverished cities in the world. And there is always a beautiful, beautiful Rodeo Drive area. You go to Rio, you go to Sao Paulo, you go to Tokyo, you, you, go, to, you go to Osan, you, you, you go to Seoul, you, you, you go to... Tel Aviv, you go, to, you go to any of these modern cities today, Mexico City, any of the cities in the United States, not only are you going to find areas that are a little bit impoverished, but you're going to find areas, streets, that are just absolutely gorgeous. And the people walking down them are fashionable and they're couture. And Amos has positioned himself in one of these areas in northern Israel, in the city of Samaria. And as he's standing or sitting or drinking his coffee on the Rodeo Drive of Samaria, he is, he is struck, he's impacted by the couture of the women that he sees walking by. And he says to them, he says to them, you know, to these over-the-top affluent women that because you oppress the poor and because you crush the needy, there is a judgment that is going to come down on you. That is that verse 2 about the hooks and the fish hooks. Now, 
Why did he do this? I mean, what in the world is going on that would cause him to say these kinds of things against these ladies? Well, when you get to chapter 5, the very next chapter of Amos, he addresses the fact that there are judges that are immoral and they are not just and they are unfair and they are unethical. And the reason is, is because the rich can go in and they can bribe these judges to give uh, an edict, to give a verdict that is in their favor regardless of the circumstances or the facts of the case. And the, and the poor are being crushed by this. But the women really don't have anything to do with that. You drop over to chapter 8 and what you find is in the marketplace. There's a lot of dishonest scales. You go to the butcher shop, you go to the... The, uh, the herb shop, the shops, the, the grain shops, you go to the, the mercantile areas and there are dishonest scales, meaning that the, the prices that are being charged for the goods that the poor need and the, the needy are, 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 are needing to, to, to survive, they're being cheated out of their money. It's not a fair exchange of goods. The, the economic system is unjust. But again, the women probably would not have been involved in this in any form or fashion. So what is it really that is going on? I believe that the statement that they are guilty of or the description of what they are guilty of is found back in verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor, crush the needy, and what? Say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. Now what that is a reflection of is a lifestyle that put demands on the husbands to maintain a lifestyle that impacted the poor in adverse ways. In other words, their good life made for a bad life for the poor. Someone, and this is true in every age, and this is true of, of every culture, there is always someone who pays the price in a materialistic culture. And God always... God always has an issue with oppression. He always has an issue with injustice, but especially so when that injustice and when that oppression is done by church people or temple people in Amos' day. And so what he says to them beginning in verse 4 is this, Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. Amos says that, you know, and he's speaking on God's behalf, Amos is saying that one day of worship does not hide from him six days of unjust and oppressive living. Now you can imagine what, what happened. You know, Amos is out there on Rodale Drive. He sees all of these couture women walking by, and he begins to preach. And his first words are, You cows of Bashan that live on Mount Samaria. You crush the poor and you oppress the needy. You say to your husbands, Come and bring us drinks. This is what's going to happen to you. And he talks about the hooks, and the last of you, the fish hooks. Now, what in the world do you think they did? Well, I'll tell you what they did. They went home and they talked to their husbands about it. And those husbands show up, and they want to know of Amos, why in the world are you preaching this way against our wives? And Amos has a sermon for them too. We pick up in chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. He says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation. See, this one is for the boys. To whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calneh and, and look at it. 
Go from there to Great Hamat and then go to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Underline those words. Then verse 7, Therefore you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will come to an end. Now, the, the main issue that, that God, speaking through Amos, has with these women and with these men is that they have affluence coupled with indifference towards human beings. They have affluence, but it is synced up. It's coupled with indifference towards other human beings. They chose consumerism over helping their brother Israelites. And he says, you don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Now, what in the world is that? Well, you remember back in Genesis chapter 37, those brothers of Joseph have had it up to here with his arrogance and with his pride and with his, his, his continual talking about the greatness of his own person. And finally, they've had enough of it and they're going to act and they come up with this plan that they're going to get rid of this brother once and for all. And they capture him when he comes out to look for him. They capture him and they throw him down into an empty cistern and they throw him into this pit. And they decide that they're not going to kill him. But they are going to, to sell him into slavery. And the after they make that decision, the very next verse says, and then they sat down and had their lunch. Now, I think what it is that, that Amos is getting at is, you know, they, they, they have a brother who is in a pit. They have a brother who they, they are impacting with their unjust and oppressive behavior. They have a brother who is in trouble, and yet they're sitting down to eat their lunch. In other words, instead of being sickened on the cultural, economic, national stage, being sickened by all of the injustice around them, those ten tribes, the, the affluent, the, the, the rich of those ten tribes, instead of being nauseated by what's going around, on around them in terms of injustice, the oppression of the poor and the, the crushing of the needy, they ignore it because they have inoculated themselves with their good life. Now, before I make these, these last three points, there's a couple of things I want to make clear. In fact, there are three things before I make the final three points that, that need to be kind of cleared up here. First, being poor does not necessarily make you a superior moral agent. Now, there are lots of reasons for poverty. Some of them are personal some of them are, 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 are personal bad decisions. Some of them are, are you, you know, are, are individual and personal to that, in the, to, to that human being. And some of the most materialistic people I've ever run into in my life are poor people. So being poor does not necessarily make you a superior moral agent. The Bible is very clear on that. But second, Amos is not saying that being affluent makes one automatically spiritually dead not at all god is the one who makes abraham rich he is the father and he is the father of the faith god is the one who has brought the riches to these individuals but the problem here is not that the poor are just automatically spiritual or that the rich are automatically spiritually dead 
The problem is, is the, and this is the reason why it's not just Amos' prophetic word, but the other prophets who speak a prophetic word against the rich, is that the rich have a capacity to affect change in their culture that the poor do not have, but they do not have a burden or a heart for justice in their society. The prophets always rail against anyone, rich or poor, who only think about their own good and turn a, 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 their eyes away from a brother who is in need. And the mission of the church, our church, is to create godly culture. Our, the, the mission of our church is to create a, a God-honoring society wherever the church is found. In our particular case, it's San Antonio. And before any of that can happen, we have to come to grips with what it means to be blessed by God with whatever degree of material goods and resources and treasures and affluence we've been blessed with. Now, three principles that Amos teaches us. The first, all possessions, material possessions, the, the, the goods that God blesses us with, they only provide a deceptive security. It's so easy to think that we're not going to be harmed, that we have at our, you know, in our bank accounts and in our hands the resources to protect ourselves, but that's deceptive. Once people begin to acquire and amass things, it becomes easier and easier to identify and, and value and, and find security in those things rather than in God. And once they become the foundation for that personal identity, and once they become the, the, uh, the, the source for us to think that our lives are protected or that we are somehow inoculated from any harm coming to us, then it is the natural tendency for us to go to extreme measures to protect them. They have become very, very important to us. And what Amos tries to get these folks to understand is that when they come to worship, the reason they don't get where their true security comes from is because their worship is false. The, the possessions have become too important to them. They'll come and they'll go through the motions, but there is no interaction. There is no connection that is made at the spiritual, human, personal level with the Creator God of the universe in their worship. They go through the motions, but their, but their foundation for security, their foundation for their value, the way that they get their identity is found in their stuff. That's where their heart is. It's not in the temple. It's not with the sacrifices. It's not in worship. And what Amos is trying to get them to see is that when you come into the place where the people of God are worshiping God, you are interacting not only with them and not only with God's commandments, but you are interacting with God Himself. And the closer that you draw to God, the more He becomes your true security. The, the more spiritually intimate that you come to God, the, the more He becomes the source of your identity. And you understand that it is by His hand and His hand alone that you are protected, that you are lifted up, that you are guarded. It is the cleft that He makes in the rock for you that protects you. And then number two, God will not bless those who gain through injustice. You know the history of Marxism is birthed in an unjust 19th century industrial revolution in a Christian nation. Marx and Engel are looking at what's happening in the industrial uh, revolutionized Christian 19th century England and what is happening to children, what's happening to, to, to women, and what's happening to men and to families. And that is where communism is birthed from the Marxist sense of it. 
there are always going to be upper income earners in every culture. And again, God gives those riches. But although the wealth and the possessions are not forbidden, and it's God that gives them, they must never be gained through ungodly and moral ways. Part of the history of God is the history of judgment on injustice. You go to Genesis, Genesis chapter 6 and you have the flood of Noah because the world is corrupt and it's full of violence. In, in Exodus 3, God judges the Egyptians for their oppression of the Hebrews. In Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, it is God who is determined to destroy Assyria because of its excessive military savagery. And the legal stipulations found in Leviticus forbade the oppression of the poor. Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15. And to act otherwise, to act in complete disregard of these scriptures was to show a lack of fear, of, 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 a lack of respect, a lack of awe for God. And to become so hardened by selfishness as to become spiritually insensitive. But God brings the judgment. Which leads to the last point and we're done. God will remove all sources of false security through judgment. There is this little phrase that you find in Amos, the day of the Lord. It is not just a reminder of judgment. It's not just a reminder of judgment, but a reminder that God is going to take sovereign control of His people's history. Which means sometimes that He will bring it to an end. And that's not just an Old Testament principle. That is a principle in the New Testament as well. When you go to Revelation, the very last book of the New Testament, the second chapter, very first letter that is addressed to the churches in general, it's a letter to Ephesus. And at the end of that letter, Jesus says through John to that church in Ephesus, you need to repent and you need to re return to your first love because if you don't, I will remove your lampstand which means that He will cease to bless them as a church. The day of the Lord is also the day in which God changes the worldview of His people by taking away their idols and, and, and ushering in humility and modesty in their hearts. And it's such a day as the day of the Lord that forces God's people to reevaluate not only their lives, but especially their connection to the will of God and where they find the source of their security, and where they find their identity, and who they recognize as the king of all the stuff. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. And there may be some ways in which our church can minister to you. Maybe you've been struggling with your faith and not really sure, you know, how many legs you're standing on presently when it comes to this adversity or this issue or this problem that you're facing and you feel, though, that you need the strength of the prayers of the church, the time to make that known is tonight. Or it may be that you've been thinking about your own life, and you know that there are a lot of, uh, a lot of things that are heaped up in your heart, and they keep you awake at night. And it's that guilty conscience. It's that understanding of, of, of all of the terrible things that you've done in this life to other people, and the things that have, have, have hurt other people that, that make you feel guilty and keep you up at night. And you're wondering maybe that God's Word, the Gospel, is true when it comes to this forgiveness of sin. I'm here to tell you that it is. 
that over and over in Scripture, God talks about the fact that He will take your sin and put it in a place where He can no longer remember it. He'll put it at the bottom of the sea. He'll put it as far away from Him as the east is from the west. It will be erased. And that happens because He loves you. But you have to, you have to come to Him in faith. You have to come to Him in faith in what He has achieved through His Son Jesus on the cross, that Jesus took all of that stuff that makes you feel guilty and keeps you up at night and doesn't allow the sleep to come, that Jesus took all of that personally from you and paid the price for it, paid the, the price for the, the crime of your sin on that cross because He wanted to and because He wants relationship with you. And if tonight you're ready to take that next step in coming to Him in faith and having your sins washed away in baptism and making Jesus the Lord of your life and God, this core, the core, the core being of your life in order to follow Him all the days of your life, then we're going to invite you to come down and to talk to these shepherds now as we stand and praise God.